Well, uh, it's a big day, and uh, it is amazing to uh, have uh, this opportunity to be able to talk about some of the most important things in the world. It really is a, a privilege to be a pastor and to get some time to just say awesome things, and yet it's uh, at the same time a little overwhelming because some of the things that we talk about are so much bigger than I am, and I know how desperately we need to hear them. And so even today, as we're looking at God's Word, would you be praying? We're kind of in this together. Would you be praying that the Spirit of God would be at work through the Word of God to give us hope and to show us the glory of Jesus Christ? Because that's really what we want to see today. We want to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and we're going to be talking about uh, something that's just absolutely remarkable. We're here uh, to think a little bit about the resurrection, and uh, we're going to talk about the resurrection of the dead today. And I uh, always love saying that every Easter. I don't want to get over that, the resurrection of the dead, because uh, where else are you going to go and hear about the resurrection of the dead? Uh, you might be able to go somewhere and hear uh, some things about marriage, or money, or parenting, or some of these other topics that we talk about at church sometimes, but you're not going to really go anywhere else and hear about the resurrection of the dead. And yet, uh, you should hear about it a lot at church, not just at Easter, really. We should be talking about this all the time, because the resurrection of the dead is a very important biblical truth. You might, you might say it's of first importance. Obviously, every time you pick up the Bible, uh, all the truths in the Bible are important, but there are some truths that are like separating or dividing kinds of truths, uh, meaning they have eternal implications, like if you believe them, you're a Christian, and if you don't, you're not. And the resurrection of the dead is one of them. This is core. If you were asked, what do Christians believe? And you only had a little time to answer. One of the things that you would definitely have to talk about is the resurrection of the dead. Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, one of the oldest uh, doctrinal statements there is is called the Apostles' Creed. And it's a simple list of what Christians believe, written probably around 120 AD or so. And it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Maybe some of you could almost quote this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived and born and suffered and died. And you know the rest. But it goes on to say, the third day he rose again from the dead. So we believe Jesus rose from the dead. And not just that. We believe that we will too. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And I really like that way of saying it, the, the resurrection of the body. Because if you don't put it like that, specifically the resurrection of the body, you might miss the fact that as Christians, we don't just believe in life after death. It's more specific. If you say, I believe when we die, our souls go to heaven, period, and that is the end of your statement of faith, that is not the resurrection of the dead. That is something different. As Christians, we believe that these physical bodies that go into the ground will one day come up, back up from the ground, transformed. Or you could say better. In fact, listen to how another old confession puts it. We believe the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. So you hear that, right? It's not like we're naive as Christians and that we don't know that people die and their bodies decay. We know that. We just know that there is more than that. But, the confession continues, their souls which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them which is life after death. But listen, life after death like that is not the end. They explain, the souls of the righteous 
being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest of heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And waiting is the key word, waiting. Because souls flying around in heaven is not God's goal. Instead, there is a day coming when all the dead shall be raised. With the self-same bodies and none other, although different qualities, you can tell that's the confession, which shall be united again to their souls forever. And that is the resurrection of the dead, basically. And some of the specifics of how it all works out may be a little difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but somehow God's going to work that out. That is fundamental for us as a church. That is a fundamental biblical doctrine. And it's also, like we say almost every year, a shocking one. It's not so hard to believe in life after death, I don't think. If we say, you know, we believe in life after death, that's not so shocking because God put eternity into our hearts. So we all naturally kind of think we're going to live forever. In fact, what is shocking sometimes for us to hear is that we're going to die. Life after death is not so shocking. That's not the hardest part to believe. What is hard to believe is not that we're going to live forever. It's that these bodies, which are getting older and worse and eventually are going to die, are going to come back up out of the ground somehow, better, stronger, and unable to die ever again. That is a difficult concept. That is a difficult concept because we're we think we are at least scientific, you know, and, and we, we look at that and we're like, wait, how is the, the resurrection going to work? It's a difficult concept for us, and yet, you know, it's always been a difficult concept for people to believe, actually. It's not like we're the first to wonder. In fact, uh, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 together this morning, and I know we look at this chapter almost every year at Easter, but that's because it's one of the most important chapters in the Bible on the resurrection. And one of the reasons Paul even had to write this chapter was because there were some in the church who were saying there was no resurrection of the dead, which might sound surprising. People in the church saying there's no resurrection of the dead, you might wonder what did they believe but it's not so much actually that they didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead they believe that it's that they struggled to believe we would rise from the dead and Paul even quotes them asking how are the dead raised with what kind of body do they come which is a a question we can understand asking but for Paul it was almost inconceivable that there were people who were saying they were Christians who were actually denying the resurrection of the dead. And, and to see that, you can just listen to how he opens up the chapter. He writes, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, which shows how serious this was to Paul. The gospel I preached to you, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast, Unless you believed in vain, in vain, a denial of the resurrection of the dead ends up being a denial of the gospel. This is a salvation issue. It is so fundamental. And I thought we could look at the beginning of this chapter and think about a couple reasons why. Specifically, why we are convinced that the dead will rise. That's what I want to do today. I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 11 or 1 through 12 and talk about three reasons why we shouldn't question whether the dead will rise or to put it more positively why we should be convinced about the resurrection of the dead and the first is that it already happened once I know it it seems impossible but it's not impossible how do we know that because it already happened once I mean we don't just randomly believe in the resurrection of the dead as a concept like that sounds nice the resurrection of the dead I think that would be nice no we have an actual historical event that we look back to which gives us confidence to look forward because we know if something happened once it can happen again and looking at these verses you can see we have good solid reasons for believing someone already rose from the dead as Paul is reminding 
them that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is an established fact. Because for one thing, we have eyewitness testimony. Paul writes, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And bold print that word received. Because Paul's talking about tradition that was handed down that he received from eyewitnesses. Which I know at first doesn't sound so exciting to us necessarily, believing something because of someone else's testimony. Because we're uh, kind of trained to think that believing something because of what someone else told us is not as good as believing something we figured out ourselves. But of course, that's a little bit of pride, isn't it? Because really, if we only believe because we experienced it or figured it out ourselves, we're just trusting our own authority, right? Our own testimony, the testimony of our senses or the testimony of our reason. And besides that, if you're not going to accept testimony, you're not going to believe any history at all. Because when it comes to historical facts, you have to rely on the testimony of someone else. And that's not unusual either. You know, that's not just history. There are a lot of things in your life, actually, that you only know because you learn them from someone else. The fact that this town is called Fullerton, that my parents are actually my parents, or your parents are your parents. And I guess you could find ways to figure that out, but it would take way too much work. It would be impossible, really, if... God didn't make us to learn things by relying on human testimony. That's kind of built in. And we definitely would not know pretty much anything that happened historically, really, because how do we know what happened historically? We know because there were people who were there, and they saw it, and they wrote it down. And there's actually a lot of history that we have that's not even based on eyewitness testimony. And we need to look at that testimony, of course, and and see if it's plausible. But this is such a normal way of coming to know that something happened that we even sometimes trust without eyewitness testimony. Like, for example, we know about Alexander the Great. He's a pretty famous historical figure. And yet the closest historical record we have in writing about Alexander the Great, apparently, is from over 300 years after he lived. And so I'm not saying, of course, that Every time we hear testimony, it's correct, obviously. There's work we need to do. But I am saying that it's not in and of itself uh, a lesser kind of proof testimony. And and actually, with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have have reliable records, uh, really good records, starting with the fact that they are records from people who were there. And so one reason we believe and we're certain about the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of Christ specifically is the same reason we don't doubt a lot of other history. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because we have people who were there who told us he did. You see, Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received. And that word received literally means learned by tradition. And I know that word tradition sounds like this is something that's been around forever by the time Paul's writing it. Because we usually use the word tradition for things that have been around for years and years. But Paul's writing 1 Corinthians around uh, 55 AD or so, which is only about 20 years after the crucifixion. Which means when he says he learned this from tradition, he's not talking about some legend he heard. In fact, you can take this further because here in 55 AD, Paul's reminding the Corinthians of something he told them earlier, and actually around. 51 AD, that's when Paul was in Corinth preaching the gospel, in 51 AD, talking about the resurrection, which even at that point, even less than 20 years after Jesus' death, wasn't saying anything new. He says, I just delivered to you what I received. In other words, when I was in Corinth talking to you about the resurrection around 51 AD, you remember that I was telling you something that was already an established tradition within the church. Which, for Paul, actually, the way he says this here is unusual, because usually when Paul talks about the gospel he proclaims, he talks about the fact that he received it directly from God. If you look at Galatians, he's big on that. And that was true. He got direct revelation. But here it seems like he's stressing that what he received from God 
wasn't something unique and out of step with the basic message that every other true apostle everywhere else was preaching as well. In other words, he wasn't the only person going around talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. I just delivered to you what I received. And I think that he might be even being more specific, actually, that what he's saying here in verses 3 through 7 was a creedal statement that he received. As a, as a teacher, he taught them a creedal statement that the church was already using, which he received. Scholars look at the words that Paul uses and the way Paul phrases this and say verses 3 through 7 is clearly a pre-Pauline creedal statement. How pre in other words, when exactly did Paul receive this? If he's saying that his teaching was in line with a creedal statement he learned from someone, when did he learn it? It was way before 51 AD. Paul probably became a Christian around 35 AD, which is about two or three years, at the most five years after the crucifixion. That, that's when we know he saw the resurrected Jesus. And the book of Galatians tells us that a few years after that, he went up to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles where they evaluated his doctrine. And it probably was at that meeting where Paul tells the apostles what he's teaching that they made clear he wasn't teaching anything different than they did already. That's probably why he brings Cephas and James up here in verses 5 and 7 because those are two of the people he met with, which means it's only a few years after the crucifixion and the, apostle and, uh, the apostles and, and Paul and all these believers were already preaching the death and re resurrection of Jesus as part of their core message to the point where they had a statement that the church would have even memorized and recited, which is important because there are people who think of the resurrection of Jesus as a legend maybe that came all these years after Jesus died as if it were people looking back and saying, Oh, wasn't Jesus great? Maybe we should believe he rose from the dead. But that's just not how it happened. Instead, how it happened was immediately after Jesus' death, there were people saying he rose from the dead as the main part of the message they were proclaiming. And it was such a main part of the message that they proclaimed that even as Paul reminds the Corinthians of the message he delivered to them, he's quoting a very early Christian creed saying, I delivered to you what I received only a few years after Jesus died. And, and what did you receive, Paul? I received this, and he quotes. These aren't really his words. That's what I'm saying. Verses 3 and following, it's a creed. It's this common statement the church said they believed. I mean, you even see in verse 3, they put a colon there to help you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, colon, and now I'm going to quote what I received. And, and so he's quoting in 55 AD a statement he told them in 51 AD, which was already well known somewhere around 35 AD, which Paul received from someone else, most likely the apostles themselves, who were actual eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is based on very early very early, eyewitness testimony. And Paul's bringing that up here. And it's like he's saying, I really can't believe that you're doubting the resurrection of the dead because you know the message that I delivered to you goes all the way back. And what is the message exactly? First, it's that Christ died for our sins. And if you ask, how did they know he was dead? Paul says, second, he was buried. And third, he rose three days later. And how do we know that he was raised? Verses 5 through 7, the message I delivered came from the people who saw him. They saw the empty tomb, and they saw Jesus because he made all these different appearances to them. And then to show how certain all this is, Paul starts to list. He makes a, a list of different people that he appeared to. He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, and then the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And you know, this is a, a long list, but Paul doesn't even list everybody, because in the Gospels, there are other people Jesus appeared to as well, like all those women Paul doesn't mention here. And yet I think you can see he's just showing how trustworthy this testimony is. Because for one thing, this is not coming from like one strange person out there who thought they saw something in the middle of the night, like maybe someone squinting to see this barely their piece of evidence. It's not like, I don't know, Bigfoot or something, where you hear 
about someone who says they saw him or took a picture of him and then you look at the picture and it's always like this blurry, can't quite see what it is in the corner image of something running through the forest, which is the way it works with legends, but it's not the way it worked with Jesus and the resurrection. He appeared to all kinds of people and in all kinds of different places, in Judea, in Galilee, in the town, in the country, on a hill, by the lake, indoors, outdoors, morning, evening, to men, to women, to individuals, to small groups, to 500 people at one time, to believers, to doubters, and even to some who didn't believe in him. And I like how Paul tells the Corinthians he appeared to 500 at one time, and most of them are still alive. And so it's like, you know what? You can check with them if you want. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of evidence. And yet, obviously, we all know that if you want to doubt something, you can find reasons to doubt it. Like Google, there's no such thing as color, and people will tell you color doesn't exist. Or Google numbers don't exist. And there are people who will say numbers don't exist. You can literally doubt anything. But the point is, if you're going to try to find a way to believe Jesus did not rise from the dead, it's going to take some work because you've got to do something with all this early eyewitness testimony, all these people who were there and say it happened. It's funny, actually, if you just stop and think about the origin of of the church, like take the Corinthians here. You have to ask, why is there a church in Corinth? I was reading someone this week who was saying, this is one of the the more overlooked arguments for the resurrection, the fact of the church, the fact that there was a church like this church in Corinth. You have to do something with that. Because here's this community of Jesus followers in Greece, Corinth, Greece, which is far away from Israel. It's like 2,000 miles or so away from Israel. And this is happening pretty fast. It's the 50s, so it's like 20 years later, and this is before the internet and all that. And yet, this was not the kind of message you would think that would spread quickly at all. Because usually the way to get people excited is by saying what they want to hear. And yet, Paul and the apostles were going around saying the opposite of what people wanted to hear. In fact, the two core elements of their message would have seemed absolutely crazy Because for one thing, they were telling people that the Christ died and was buried. And Christ means Messiah. So the the message is that the promised king died. And and not just died, was crucified. And so here they are, and they're calling on people to worship someone as king who was executed by the emperor. And that that would be the opposite of what they thought the Messiah was going to do. I mean, you probably need to know, actually, that Jesus was not the first person who claimed to be the Messiah who was killed by the Romans. So even right around this same time, there were at least two other potential Messiahs who were both killed by the Romans in the same era as Jesus. And yet, do you know what happened to their movements? Exactly. You don't know because we don't hear about their followers anymore. Because in the minds of first century Jews, the death of the would-be Messiah would show that he definitely was not the Messiah. That's like the proof. And yet here we are, even though Jesus was killed by the Romans, like all the other would-be Messiahs, the difference is that his movement didn't end. Instead, it exploded all around the world, which requires an explanation. And it has to be a really good explanation because it's not enough to simply say, it's because they said Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus rising from the dead sounds normal and exciting to us because we're used to it. But to most Greeks and Romans and everyone else at the time, the resurrection of the dead would have sounded pretty gross, actually. Most people in that day thought of the body like a prison. So the body was bad. And so you didn't want to stay in your body. You wanted to escape. You didn't want a resurrected body when you died. You you wanted your soul to fly away. And on top of that, they were going around saying all this about Jesus, not hundreds of years later, but right after it happened. And so if you were somehow interested, what do you think people would do? They would talk to the people who are claiming to have seen Jesus, which is actually part of why Christianity did spread everywhere, even all the way to Corinth, in spite of the fact that these weren't normal 
cultural beliefs because it happened. It actually happened. Jesus appeared to people in the flesh. And you know, you can think about the people he appeared to as well if you're like evaluating the testimony. Somebody said there are four big proofs that Jesus' resurrection happened. And one is the empty tomb and the fact that it was in Jerusalem, which is where Christianity started. It started in the place where Jesus was crucified, right after he was crucified, and that could happen because the tomb was right there and it was empty. Then, then two, there are the appearances of the resurrected Jesus, and three is the origin of the church. You have to be able to explain the fact that a group of first century Jews were willing to die to tell others that Jesus was the Messiah after he died. And then four, on top of all that, you have to think about the people who were the biggest testimonies of the resurrection. Like, for example, James and Paul, two of the people who come up here in this passage, actually, because take James to start. This is who? The, the half-brother of Jesus that Paul is talking about. And uh, I remember someone asking, do you think you could convince your siblings that you were the son of God? Like, what would it take? Which is a it's, a, it's a good question, right? Because this is Jesus' family. And you know, it wasn't automatic. Because apparently James did not believe that Jesus was who he claimed he was before the cross. So he was a skeptic, which in and of itself is kind of amazing because of what Mary had seen. And yet sort of makes sense too, because this was his brother we're talking about. And yet the thing is, even though James didn't believe before Jesus died... For some reason, after Jesus died, James became a leader in the early church, and he ends up being stoned to death because of his commitment to Jesus, which is something even a Jewish historian named Josephus tells us, which makes you think because maybe you can, ha you can understand James having a hard time believing his brother was the son of God while he was alive, but if he didn't believe it then, it seems like it would have been a million times harder for him to believe that after he saw his brother crucified. But the opposite happens. And you say, how? You have to explain that. And Paul's like, it's because he saw him. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Then he appeared to James. And that's part of how God changed Paul as well, which is pretty amazing too, because we're talking about someone who hated Jesus and everything Jesus stood for with a passion to the point where he says in verse 9 that I persecuted the church of God. And so this is not just your average unbeliever. This is a man who killed people because they believed in Jesus. And yet somehow, at some point, he's so transformed that he spends the rest of his life going around suffering and eventually dying to tell people about this same Jesus, meaning the last person you would ever expect to preach about Jesus becomes the single most zealous person ever to spread the word about Jesus. You have to have some kind of explanation for that. And again, it's the resurrection. Verse 8, last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so it's hard, of course, I know, when you see someone lowered into the ground to believe they're coming back up. But one big reason we do is because we look back and see it's happened. We have testimony, eyewitness testimony, believable testimony, like you have to do something with this testimony, that it's possible for someone to truly die and then come back up with a resurrected body, and we know if it happened to Jesus, it can happen again. In fact, let me take that one step further, because it's not just because it happened to Jesus, it could happen again. Instead, it's because it happened to Jesus, it absolutely will happen again. And this is reason number two. It, it happened, and the fact that it happened has implications. And this is where Paul's headed, because, you know, the funny thing about the Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that they weren't doubting Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it doesn't seem. They were doubting our resurrection from the dead instead. And yet you see, Paul takes all this time at the beginning of the chapter to emphasize that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was an essential, established part of the basic gospel message. In fact, in verses 12 through 19, he's like, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then everything that I'm saying 
is a lie. And you have to wonder why. I mean, why does he spend so much time talking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead if the problem he's concerned about is believing in our resurrection from the dead? And the answer is verse 12. It's because Jesus' being raised from the dead is connected to our resurrection from the dead. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so for Paul, if you want to prove that there's a resurrection of the dead, all you have to prove is that Jesus rose from the dead, because if the one happened, so will the other. Why? Go down to verse 20. Because Jesus is kind of a first fruits. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is the end of an argument Paul's been making in verses 12 through 19. He's, he's been kind of doing something funny. It's like he's pretending that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead in those verses. Maybe you remember, he keeps saying, what if Christ had not been raised? But now in verse 20, he's like, let's get real, because he has been raised. <laughs> In fact, that's reality. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. And the, the word first fruits uh, is an illustration. Uh, first fruits. Paul is saying, think about Jesus like first fruits. And I don't know, maybe you're, you're saying, what are first fruits? I'm not a farmer. Uh, or I guess you could be saying, first fruits, that's not hard. It's the fruit that comes first. Like, it literally says it. If we uh, think anything, when we hear the word first fruits, we probably think time, which is part of it, I guess. But what Paul means is actually a little bigger than just time. So it's not just like, look back at Jesus. He was raised from the dead first. He's the first fruit. He, he came first in terms of time. To understand, you actually have to do a little bit of homework because this is a term that Paul didn't make up. It came from the Old Testament. So, for example, there was a feast called the Feast of Firstfruits. And what happened was after the harvest, the people were supposed to bring the first fruits of their harvest to the priest and offer it to the Lord as a way of saying, what? Thank you, God. And as a way of expressing their faith in God, that if he gave this first fruit, he would give the rest of the harvest as well. And so it's like I'm giving this part of my harvest to God as a way of saying, thanks, because I know if he's given me this already, then he'll give me the rest as well. That's basically first fruits. Probably my favorite way the word's used is in Deuteronomy 26, though, which I think is even more clear, because there Moses is like preaching to the people about what to do when they get into the promised land. And he says, when God keeps his promises, I'm actually not going to be with you, but when God keeps his promises and gives you this land as an inheritance, what I want you to do is take some of the, the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you shall put it in a basket. And you can imagine them carrying this basket. And he wants them to go to the place where God's going to make his name dwell, and to the priest specifically, and say with the little basket in their hand, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So what's happening, Moses is saying, is that you get into the land and you take this fruit to the priest and, and you give it to him. And as you do, I want you to make a statement about God's faithfulness. And then the priest will take the basket, the first fruits. And what are you saying as you give that to him? Really, you're saying, look, even though we just got here and even though we just we don't even have the whole harvest yet. I'm not just waiting around to make sure everything's going to be OK before I give you this fruit. Because I've seen how God has kept his promises already and how he's been faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. And so now I give you this first fruit as, as a kind of testimony that I am convinced that God is not going to stop what he started, which is huge. It's, it's like, I don't know, but maybe you can imagine you're in trouble financially and I, I come to you and I make a promise and I say, I'm going to get you through this. And I'm going to give you $100,000 to help. With inflation, isn't as much as it used to be, right? But I'm going to give you $100,000 to help. And I don't give that to you right away. So you're kind of waiting and waiting for me to give you anything. But finally, I give you $1,000. And as I do give you that $1,000, I say, this is a pledge. This is a promise. 
Now obviously $1,000 is not $100,000, but it's a start. And so what do you do if you're convinced that I'm trustworthy, that I'm gonna keep my promise? Maybe you get me an expensive gift as a way of saying thanks. But what if you don't believe? You don't believe that I'm gonna give you the rest. You think a thousand is all Josh is good for. Then there's no way you're gonna get me anything because you think, who knows, this might be all that I get, this thousand. And so now think about being an ancient Israelite for a minute. And so here you are, and you just got into the land, which has taken a long time. You've been wandering around in the wilderness forever, and you had to fight to get where you are, and now you finally farm. You finally have a place to live, and you finally farmed, and the harvest is finally coming in, and this is, at, this is like your first year there, so it's the first time you've had land to farm, and this is your first fruits. What's going to be your temptation? To hoard it. Like, I better make sure, before I give any of this away, that the land is going to be good and that no one comes and tries to take it so I can know that I have enough. And once I know that I have enough, then I'll make an offering to God. And God's saying, no, I want you to make that offering right away. Give me the first fruit that comes as a testimony that you believe because you've seen how God's kept his promise in the past. You know God's going to keep his promise in the future. Are you with me? And so if, if you're there and you think, the reason I have this first fruit is because I work for it, then obviously you can't give it away because how do you know you're going to have any last fruits for your family? You don't because it depends on you. But if you know the reason you have this first fruit is because God kept his promise, then you can give it away because the promise was not just to get the Israelites into the land. It was to bless them over and above, which means the first fruit was really just the first fruit. It wasn't the all fruit. And it wasn't even the most fruit because the promise wasn't just to give you the first fruit and then leave you. That was just the beginning. And so now all the way back to Corinthians and the term first fruit, you see, is not only about time, like Jesus was the first person to raise from the dead. No, it's about God's faithfulness to his plan and to his promise. The, the first fruit is connected to the last fruit, which is why we can look back at Jesus and know what's coming in the future. Because Paul's saying he is the first fruit and his resurrection demonstrates that God is keeping his promise. And his promise was not just to raise Jesus from the dead, but the rest of us as well. It's kind of like going to the cemetery and seeing the head pop out of the ground. You don't, you're not like, well, that's interesting. I wonder if it's going to stop there. Like, the head, how are you doing? The rest of you coming out? No, you see a head popping out. Well, first of all, you're freaking out. But the second thing is like, I'm guessing we, the rest of that body is coming. Which is really... Uh, where Paul's re third reason for confidence comes in, we believe in the resurrection of the dead, first, because it happened. Jesus rose from the dead. And second, because we know that the resurrection has implications. If he rose, we will rise as well. That's all part of the plan. And we know that, third, because the Bible says so. And really, at the end of the day, the Bible is the biggest reason for believing the resurrection. And maybe you think I'm talking about the New Testament when I say that, primarily. I, I can see how you might think that. Like, I believe in the resurrection of the dead because of the New Testament, which is true, but there's more. Actually, I'm talking more specifically about the Old Testament instead, that the resurrection of the dead has to happen because Jesus' resurrection of the dead happened just like the Old Testament said it would. And this is part of the purpose of Luke, the book of Luke that we've been studying lately, and we're going to see how he does a lot to prove this. And this is actually the climax of the whole book of Luke in chapter 24. And it makes sense because he was a friend with Paul, and so he probably learned this from Paul. I was going to preach to you Acts 13, uh, actually, today. I, I obviously didn't, but I was going to. Paul's first sermon. And Paul's first sermon in Acts 13 is all about how the Scripture proves that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And when we get to the end of Luke, I hope this is an aha moment for you the way it was for me because I would think normally, normally I would think if we want proof of the resurrection, we would go to like the historical evidences first, even sort of like how I already gave you those. But as you read the Bible, you see that a greater proof, in a sense for Paul, 
and the apostles was what the scripture said. If you look down at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15, and this is so important that Paul says it twice, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in, in accordance with the scriptures, meaning his substitutionary death and his being raised on the third day both happened in accordance with the scriptures. And you can imagine almost after that, like, mic drop for Paul. <laughs> now, what scriptures exactly? Because he's not talking about the gospels here, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's, he's talking about the Old Testament. And so one big reason Paul's confident about the resurrection is because he saw Jesus's resurrection from the dead as vitally connected to this big, long story that God's been telling and explaining all the way back since Genesis which is how Jesus thought of it as well. As we read Luke, we'll see as Jesus prepares his followers for his death and resurrection, he continually stresses that this is what the Bible said would happen. Like Luke 9, 21 and 22, for example, he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. And the emphasis is on the word must. This is a necessity. It's not just because things weren't going well, no. This must happen. And you fast forward to Luke 18. It's similar. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. It's necessary because this is what the Bible said would happen. And Luke 24 is the most clear of all. As there are two disciples and they're going home and they're so discouraged and Jesus draws near and he starts to talk to them and he says, what are you talking about? And they say, Aren't, are you the only one who doesn't know that this Jesus who we were hoping would be the one who redeemed Israel has died and now it's three days later and it's so terrible because there are these people going around telling us this story about how he rose from the dead. And you know what Jesus says to them? Because for us, I, I think we can understand their confusion, but it's like Jesus can't. He says, fools. Oh, foolish ones. Why? Not simply because he had told them what was going to happen, but because the scriptures had. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And you know, later on, he meets with the disciples and says, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus wants the disciples to understand that the resurrection was not a surprise. It was more like an, of course, if they were reading the Old Testament correctly. Of course Jesus rose from the dead. He had to. And even Jesus, if you think, how, how did he know he was going to rise from the dead? You want an example of what it looks like to believe in the resurrection of the dead based on the testimony of Scripture? Look at Jesus. We might be tempted to say, well, he knew because he was God. But we know he lived his life with human limitations as a man. And so I'm not Sure, but I, I think the reason he was so confident he was going to rise from the dead didn't actually have as much to do with his being God as it did with him reading the scriptures and knowing this is what had to happen. And he even knew the day. He knew even that it had to happen on the third day, which is actually what Paul says as well. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And maybe you're saying, like, where? I hope you're saying, where? Like, where does the Old Testament talk about the resurrection? And that would be a whole nother sermon. <laughs> but the first place we often go is looking for predictions. Like, is there this one verse somewhere that says Jesus will rise on the third day? And that's fine to do because there are some pretty specific statements you can find. But you know, probably a better place to go is back to the promise plan of God, the, the, the story the Old Testament tells. Because fundamentally, the Old Testament's telling a story about what God's doing in this world, and as we're reading the Old Testament and coming to understand the story, it's like we're tracing how he's going to accomplish his promise plan. 
which leads us to expect the resurrection. It's like the, the next logical step. It's sort of like those math problems that you do when you're young where they'll say one, three, and then there's like a blank. What goes in the blank? Yeah, or five, ten, blank, fill in the blank. That's how it works with the story God's telling. As we look back and trace the story, fill in the blank has got to be the resurrection of Jesus and then us as well. Because God created this world with a purpose. That's how it all starts if we go back to the beginning of the book. We see God designed man to rule this world as his representative, making the whole world a place where we could enjoy his presence and his blessing. But then, of course, man rebelled. And instead of bringing that blessing into the world, he brought chaos and the curse and was cast out of God's presence. And yet God made a promise right at the very beginning that Eve's seed, one of her descendants, would defeat Satan and actually reverse the curse. And so bring this promise rest. And as we read the rest of the Old Testament, we learn more and more about who this seed would be and what this seed would do. He would be one of Abraham's descendants. He would bring blessing to the entire world. He would come from the line of Judah, and he would be a king who defeats all of God's enemies and who would rule as his representative forever. And this is the big one. Just listen to the promise God makes David. He says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And so the Old Testament is really clear that God's going to rule this world through one of Eve's descendants. One of Eve's descendants is going to reverse all the consequences of man's rebellion and bring this world into order, and he's going to be established as a king who rules forever. And you know, how's he going to do that? I mean, just follow the logic, like one, three, blank, fill in the blank. Because if he's going to rule the world forever, how is a human going to be able to do that? How do you have a forever human king? How do you have the consequences of man's rebellion overturned? How do you make this world a place where God and humans can dwell together? You have to do something about sin first, but obviously you have to do something about death as well. Death itself has to be defeated, and so you need a cross and you need an empty tomb because man brought death into this world. God is going to use man to defeat it. The resurrection is certain because the Bible says so. It is key to the plan, and as believers, I know if you're a Christian, you say you believe that. You're like, of course I believe in the resurrection of the dead. But do you? Do you? I find a lot of Christians don't actually believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because it's shocking. And death is so heavy. Or they believe it helped my unbelief, you know? And we're not just closing our eyes to reality every Easter pretending. Because we know the resurrection of the dead is not something normal. And we know it's not something the world thinks happens. But we're convinced it will happen. Why? Why are we convinced the resurrection of the dead will happen? Are we? Are you convinced? Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Because you have good reason to. First, because it happened. And we know why it happened. It's part of this huge biblical story about how God's bringing rest and blessing into this world. And because Jesus' resurrection happened, just like the Old Testament said it would, and his disciples should have expected it, the, the, the king had to die to be the king who could defeat death and live forever. And a forever king like Jesus deserves a forever people. He's promised a forever people. And so you can count on the fact that God is not going to leave this story unfinished because his plan is not just to have Jesus be king forever over no one, but over a people who have been resurrected from the, the dead themselves as well. So expect it. It's going to happen. You are going to rise from the dead, and I'm going to rise from the dead. 
And that reality should change our whole way of looking at the world completely. The way we, we think about death, the way we make priorities, the way we handle suffering, the way we use money, the way we worship Jesus, the way we fight against sin. But does it? It's like someone once said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, nothing matters. But if there is a resurrection of the dead, nothing else matters more. And there is. There is a resurrection of the dead. We have good eyewitness testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. And his resurrection has implications for you. Jesus rose from the dead so that you would rise from the dead. And we know that. We know that because the Bible says so. Let's pray. Spirit of God, please preach this message to your people. To those who don't know you, we know ultimately it's not going to be just an argument that shows them the glory of Christ. They ultimately need you to do a supernatural work in their hearts and give them faith that they don't have. But Lord, that's not just faith in, in nothing. There is good reasons to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so I pray that you would call those who don't know you, uh, that you would strip them of all the false hopes that they're clinging to. Lord, that's a kindness. It hurts when you strip us of false hopes, but it's real. There's a day coming when all of us, we're going to be on our deathbed, and all those things we've been clinging to are going to be proven to be just false hopes. There's only going to be one hope that can outlast the deathbed, and that's the, the, true, the true gospel, the resurrection of the dead. And so I pray that you would call unbelievers to yourself, and then I ask that you would strengthen our hearts as believers to, to, to keep the main thing the main thing. Not to get distracted by this and that, but to be amazed by the fact that, Jesus, you came into this world to die in our place, but you didn't stay dead. You rose from the grave, and so we know we will too. Please help us to be an institution of hope, because we have this living hope. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.